Hello, my name is Mikey Barge, and this is the podcast from the Greater London Youth Foundation. And this is the Greater London Youth Foundation presents The Mikey Barge Show. Each week, we will talk to young people who are doing great things in their community, or how they overcome failure or problems and so on. What have they learned from life's lessons that they can pass along to everybody? We will also talk to some adults who are doing great things for young people in their community sometimes too. Our sponsors are the John Lyons Charity, the Big Lottery Community Fund and Harrow Council. We would also like to thank the Young Harrow Foundation and Voluntary Action Harrow Cooperative. It's not all serious stuff, I promise you, but we take everything seriously sometimes. If you want to get involved, our details will be in the notes. Grab your oxygen mask because today we're going under the sea with Gerard Barron, the CEO and founder of Deep Green. Gerard Barron not only is the cornerstone pioneer of the battery revolution, but a charismatic entrepreneur prioritizing his passion for saving the planet and investing in future generations across the globe. From down under Australia to deep under the ocean, this master of metal may be on the cusp of curing the carbon crisis. And why not? He has the mind of a scientist, the swagger of an action hero and a heart of gold. And together he wields these qualities like Poseidon's great trident to save us from the savage storms ahead. In 2019, around 64% of our electricity came from fossil fuels. Fossil fuel mining has had a visceral history of suffocating the surfaces of our planet, sacrificing our sustainable longevity as a species, crippling our infrastructures as a society, and practically ostracizing every majestic creature under God's green earth, all in the name of capitalism. But don't kiss goodbye the rainforest just yet because Gerard Barron's company have combated this conundrum with an aquatic solution designed to reduce this endemic pollution. But how can the miracle of mother nature combine with the brilliance of modern engineering safely provide us with an alternative solution to our current problematic model. Gerard Barron putting the C back into CEO is here to tell us why and explore the shores of our understanding, diving deep with us today into unknown territories. I've got some quick fire questions for you. Let's just get at it. Um, what is Deep Green? What is Deep Green? So Deep Green is all about finding a lower environmental uh, cost supply of metals. And we collect them via these, uh, we call them polymetallic nodules, and they literally lie on the ocean floor, just like this, like golf balls on a driving range. And we collect them, and then we move them to shore and turn them into battery metals. And Mikey, as you know, um, as we move away from fossil fuels, we're going to have to build billions of batteries. And so we have to look at the true environmental and social cost of producing more metals. And uh, from land-based, it ain't looking good. So this is one of the big environmental solutions. And I'm looking at it right now, the nodule. What is inside it? What's inside this nodule? Well, think of it as an electric vehicle battery in a rock. Uh, and they literally grow, right? They precipitate the metals that are in the ocean water or uh, that are in the sediment upon which they sit. And, you know, Mikey, 20 years ago, I never even knew the oceans were filled with metals, right? I just thought they were all on land and we dug up our forests to go looking for metals. But actually, the ocean waters uh, and the sediments are filled with them. And so these guys precipitate the metals that are in the water. And so it's full of nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese and some other rare earth metals as well. So it's quite amazing. And why is cobalt so important? That comes up a lot. Why is cobalt so important? What's mm. it used for? Well, 
Well, for two reasons, right? Um, the reason why cobalt has such a high profile is because it's often mined by children in the Congo. And unfortunately, those kids um, are taken from, from the age of five because of their size, and they're shoved down these horrible artisanal mines to go chipping away for cobalt because cobalt is what's used in your mobile phone battery. So it's quite a special ingredient. It can withstand, it's very stable up until very high temperatures. And, you know, batteries are really complex things, right? They, they can catch on fire and that's, a, that's not good. So cobalt's a very stabilizing metal, but unfortunately most of the world's cobalt is in the Congo. And so, you know, people don't like the fact that they're walking around with a nice new mobile phone and it's being produced by slave labor, basically. And let's go back to the nodules. How long do they take to make these nodules? Well, well, so think of them as about the size of a potato. I'm holding one in my hand now. And this would be about, you know, three to four million years old. So they become bigger and they, they're also smaller as well. So they're a factor of size. Mm -hmm. Not all nodules are the same. And nodules from the North Sea are made up of particles of mountains washed down the rivers into the ocean and squashed with pressure over millions and millions of years? <laughs> well, partly true, partly false. So firstly, all of these nodules form the same way, right? They, they all precipitate or, or squash in, as you said, the metals that are in the ocean water or the sediment upon which they sit. Now, there's one little part of the ocean, it's in the Pacific Ocean, it's now known as the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, or we, we call it the CCZ. And it represents as about 0.3 of 1% of the entire ocean. So the ocean is about 360 million square kilometers in size. And there's about 1.2 million square kilometers currently under exploration licenses and and the reason why that area is interesting is because if you look to the right we're about a thousand miles offshore if you look to the right you have the rockies and the andes big mountain ranges that run down north and south america and over many tens and hundreds of millions of years they spewed out uh, volcanic matter, which was all metals. And then the copper tops and the nickel tops eroded through rivers and whatever into the Pacific Ocean. So all of these metals settled there. And that's why this is the area of interest. But up in Norway, not so lucky. No nickel, no copper. And so the nodules up there aren't even worth picking up. There's no value in them. Interesting. Here's another true or false one then. Nodules were discovered... Nodules were discovered back in 1870. True. Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, the British explorers had this curiosity. They wanted to know what lay on the bottom of the ocean. No one knew how deep the ocean was, right? So they, they converted a gunship called the HMS Challenger, turned it into a science ship, sailed around the world for four years with a, a dredge off the back, and luckily, the steam piston had been invented, so they'd, they'd get the piston going and haul up this dredge, and they recorded what was on the bottom of the ocean for four years. Pioneering stuff. True or false, there are 1.6 billion tons of nodules in the ocean. False. There is 1.6 billion tons on two of our license areas. Ours. 
there are more than 1.6 billion tons in total. But on two of our license areas, we have defined, identified 1.6 billion tons of these. And that's enough to build around 280 million mid-sized electric vehicle batteries. True or false, are you ready to start running operations in 2024? True. Absolutely true. That's very soon. That's in two, three years. Yeah, I know. Don't remind me. <laughs> All right. Where's, uh, you really answered this, where the best place is to get nodules. Thank you. Um, and maybe you can elaborate on this. Who controls and regulates the ocean and how do they do this? How do they regulate the ocean and who are they? And Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a good question. So, so these are 4,000 meters below the sea, right, uh, on the seabed. And 50 years ago, they started to collect nodules. So they built the technology, they solved the technological challenges, they, they did all these pilots, but then they thought, hmm, who do we ask if we can do this? They just assumed they'd be able to lay claim. And so they decided to go and ask the United Nations. And of course, the United Nations said, no, you can't do that because we're still working out who owns the oceans. And so it was in 1982 that UNCLOS was finally agreed. And UNCLOS stands for the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. And so they then set up a, a body called the International Seabed Authority, or the ISA, and they govern the high seas. And, and what UNCLOS said is that you own everything within 12 miles of your coastline. This is a country does. You have an economic right to everything within 200 miles. But beyond that, it's not yours. In fact, it's going to be deemed the common heritage of mankind. So everyone owns it. And the International Seabed Authority was established to regulate it. So that's who it is. But according to me, I think Poseidon owns the sea. Yeah? <laughs> uh, do you think other planets have nodules? And if so, who regulates that? I'll that one for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, but you know, for another day. True or false, nodule mining could potentially destroy the delicate and vital micro ecosystem on the seabed floor. False. False. And, you know, to answer that question, you know, let's face it, land-based mining is pretty horrible, right? We've all seen the destruction, the, the waste material and the rainforests that get pulled down. So if you thought about doing that in the ocean, that would be horrible, right? I would be totally, totally against that. But we're talking about a very different environment. And, and to fully understand it, you, if we had our time again, we would carry out extractive industries in parts of the planet where there was the least life, right? We wouldn't go to the rainforest, we'd go to the desert where there's no plants, you know, there's no trees to cut down, there's no you know, carbon to be released. We, we'd actually go to the most desolate places and that's where we are at 4,000 meters below sea level in the abyssal zone. It's the biggest desert on the planet. And, you know, using, so that's a good starting place, right? There's less life to impact. And most of the life there is bacteria living in the sediment. And so 
And then we can use other precautionary steps like big set-aside zones, like uh, make sure we design the equipment so it has the minimal impact on the environment. And obviously, the fact that they just lie on top of the ocean floor means that we don't have to dig or blast or tunnel to get to them. We just have to pick them up with the lowest possible impact. So it brings me on to this. How are you going to collect the nodules? And I assume it's by some sort of vehicle or a machine. And if so, what's it called? And who's going to drive that thing? <laughs> well, the good news is um, we haven't named them. So that's going to be an opportunity. But but think of <laughs> yeah. So but think of the uh, think of it as you've got a floating ship out there which provides the power, right? And then you have a big pipe called a riser that goes 4,000 meters below sea level. And at the bottom of it, you've got these uh, tracked vehicles or harvesters, as we call them. And what they do is they move along the ocean floor, collecting the nodules with the lowest impact, separating out any sediment, any dirt on the bottom, and then putting the nodules back into the riser pipe. And we inject compressed air about a third of the way down. And, you know, the compressed air expands, rises, creates a vacuum, and then we vacuum them back up to the production vessel. And so, yeah, so it's, it's all pretty cool stuff. That is cool. It's like a hoover that sucks up the nodules, but also, you know, you want to be delicate and not dissipate totally. the ecosystem. So there's a balance yeah. there. Well, let's yeah, for, any of you, for any of your uh, listeners who are uh, engineering minds, we actually use a, a principle called the Coonda effect, which allows us to uh, lift the nodules with the lowest impact on the surrounding environment. So look it up. <laughs> this is fascinating. So let's talk about the name very quickly, nodules, nodules. For me, it sounds like a band from the 60s, you know, the Eagles, you know, the Beatles and the nodules, you know. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's a skin growth, that's medically that sort of thing. So why is it called nodules? Is it intentionally to be off-putting name? Is that, you know, like calling <laughs> it like the black pearl or ocean gold or aquatic coal? You know, you want to call it yeah. something less desirable, don't, you know. Is it, is it, is it intentionally? If so, it's genius. It's genius. Um, but <laughs> is, is, is it because what was, um, is this new well, territory? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we can... Um... We kind of inherited that. So when they were discovered uh, way back in the 1870s, it was from that time on that they started to be called nodules. And so, you know, we'd like to change the name of them to Remarkable Rocks because that's what they are. So, and, you know, that would be a pretty cool band as well, right? The Remarkable Rocks. And so that's kind of the way we're heading. And, and we're actually about to change our company name as well. Mikey, from Deep Green to the Metals Company, the oh. Metals Company. And, and, you know, the reason we're doing that is it, uh, well, it, we do exactly what it says on the tin. You know, we're about producing metals. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, stay tuned for that. And you can, you, can uh, you know, we'll just transfer that name probably in the next couple of weeks, actually. So. Fantastic. That's an exclusive there, people. <laughs> Metals company coming to you. Um, true or false? It's better to power electric batteries from nodules rather than any other form of industrial mining that we've seen. One hundred percent true. Is climate and greenhouse gases a bigger threat to the ocean than deep sea mining or nodules could ever do? 
Absolutely. You see, this is where, from a conservation perspective, we've got to think of, you know, we have a crisis on our hands, right? It's called uh, global warming. You know, the, the planet is heating up. Our ice caps are melting. The ocean is getting warmer. That's the biggest threat to the oceans. And, and what we've proven through our studies is that we can make battery cathodes using our rocks compared to using land-based uh, mining material, and we can reduce CO2 emissions by more than 90%. And, and let's just put that number into context. So there's about 1.2 billion light passenger vehicles on the road. And so it's inevitable they're going to move electric. It's inevitable. You know, if the next time we buy electric cars or the next time we hop into a new Uber or, or whatever the mode of transport, it's probably going to be electric, on a, partly because governments are regulating it, partly because they're becoming cheaper to make, so the, there'll be a cost advantage to buy them. Cost of ownership is now going to be in the favor of electric. So we're going to make a billion batteries. And if we use land-based metals, that will generate more than 13 gigatons of CO2 emissions. Now, for your listeners who appreciate, you know, the 1.5 degree uh, global warming target, we've only got a carbon CO2 budget of like 222 gigatons. So 13 of it will be used making electric vehicle batteries. And we can reduce that number by more than 90% because it's not just the mining practice. It's not just the fact that refining these into metals is a whole lot greener. We, by the way, 100% of this nodule that I'm holding, we use. So there's no waste and no tailings, which is just amazing compared to land-based. But it's also where the land-based metals are coming from because we're having to destroy our carbon sinks, you know, the trees, the soil, the forests what, that absorbs all of the CO2. And obviously, as we destroy that, then two things happen. We release a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. And we also mean that that area cannot sequester more carbon. So it's a double whammy effect, all, all to the negative. So nodules are the way to go. If nodules are the way to go, then this might be, as you say, the battery power revolution. I've heard that mm -hmm. term come Yes. Around. So question to you then, what new jobs will be created because of this? Lots of jobs, lots of jobs for, for two things. Uh, one is, you know, the oceans are, well, I, I've heard people say that they're less understood than Mars or the moon, which is wrong. You know, in this part of the ocean, we study it down to the per square centimeter. And so that's going to kick off a massive revolution in ocean-based science jobs. So let's start with that area because, you know, understanding the impacts, understanding how we can reduce the impacts, how we can monitor what companies like us are doing. So the ocean-based jobs are going to be enormous. And because we're moving into an era of really, you know, tremendous transparency, you know, we're going to be making it really easy for people to see what we're doing. So there's going to be jobs all the way through the food chain around ocean science. And then when it comes to onshore, of course, you know, we've got to make the battery materials, then we've got to make the battery cells, and then we've got to, you know, build all these new renewable power stations, which of course there's 70 odd thousand of them in the world. So changing them from uh, fossil fuel powered into, 
into solar and wind and uh, and battery storage to be able to store that energy when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining there's going to be it's going to be a job bonanza which is good news for for people looking for jobs in the next 10 or 20 years and what sort of jobs are out of here then because of uh modules? well what sort of jobs are out is going to be uh, fossil fuels. You know, there's no doubt that I think if you believe we've hit peak oil, then there's no growth going to happen in that industry. It's going to be oil's here for a while. Don't get me wrong. Like we still need oil, unfortunately. Um, but uh, look, I think probably another 50 years, we're going to still need to Pretty burn. Sure. Yeah, oil. 50 years? Yeah. Goes by yeah. Quite I th it does. And so, but I don't think what we're going to see is growth in jobs in that category. In fact, it's going to be a shrinking industry. And so, um, and I guess there are some land-based mining practices that we hope to see an end to, you know, like all the people that are ripping down our rainforests or all the, the people that are forcing five and six-year-olds down artisanal mine shafts. I, I really hope those jobs are coming to an end. <laughs> You say something really cool. Um, I heard about, heard you say this on a few other podcasts about building a city on the ocean. Mm. Is it true? It's well, you know, it's um, we we engaged with who who I think is the world's leading architect, Biake Ingalls, because to help us reimagine how our heavy industrial uh, functions can look and perform better, right? So Biake is famous for having built some of the most iconic buildings in the world. But he's also a big full system thinker. And so one of the things that we asked Biake to work with us on were these floating communities, because there will be hundreds of people, scientists, there'll be maintenance people that will be required to service our production systems and to monitor the environment out in the CCZ. And of course, one of the one of the things with the offshore industry is people go to work for six weeks at a time and then they come back, you know, and get four weeks off and then they go again. So it's very disruptive. Whereas we imagined, because the other driver is that through rising sea levels, it's estimated that by the end of the century, 90% of coastal communities will be impacted by rising sea levels, which means that people have either got to move to higher ground or we've got to learn to live on the ocean. And, you know, we work a lot with developing countries in the Pacific and some of those developing countries, who, by the way, have been the least contributors to climate change, will be the most impacted because they're going to be washed away. And so we thought, because we've got a specific use case, meaning we've got people that need to be there, why don't we design a little floating community where people could live in a, in a purely closed loop type environment? So you just have to sustain yourself. You know, there's no waste generated. And yeah, so that's something that we've got under, under, um, under the wraps at the moment. We haven't announced it. So that's another exclusive here, Mikey. So, uh, oh. Exclusive yeah. time. So you're building Atlantis. This is amazing. This is and it's genius as well to keep all the families together, as you say, which keeps up morale and spirits. And there could be a totally. whole community there. You know, entertainment. You could have uh, schools. Totally. A number totally. Of That's absolutely our vision. Your own currency, even. Would you be totally, on the Facebook? Yeah. 
um this is really cool stuff all right so another couple of quick fire questions um is mining dangerous yes i mean the the big mining companies have made it a lot safer than it used to be but there are just some characteristics of land-based ores that you can't get away from and i give you an example in brazil recently a, a major asset a major mine that was owned by bhp and valet the number one and number three mining company in the world at the time and they had this big tailings dam which is where you have to keep all of this toxic material and uh, forever because it's it's poisonous and what happened was uh the wall of the dam burst and i mean if you if you want to look at it just google brazil tailings dam and it's horrible you see this mountainside disappear and villages and lives were destroyed because this massive flood of toxic material just came down now you know bhp is a really responsible company but all of a sudden an asset they owned caused all this horrible damage and so so even the so i guess what i'm saying is even the best companies have some disadvantages and, and you know we're lucky that we just don't have those types of issues um with this resource and i think you labeled it out because i'm coming from an entertainment background you know i've seen what's that film there will be blood or something like that you know it's mm. about mining and it reminds me of that now but the futuristic version you know the cyberpunk version or something mm, mm. Uh, electric cars of the future you say this do you what car do you drive well you might see in my background i actually have uh i'm a biker and I, i'm a i'm a uh transport sort of uh ride sharing fan so that's green that's green so you are you know you practice what you preach um i appreciate that um true or false in 40 to 50 years time you want to be in the recycling business and not the mining business correct yeah we, we well it's a it's a theory uh not a theory actually it's a it's an idea that is known as uh closing the loop right mm -hmm. and so because what happens today is we mine extract all of this material we we turn it into products we consume them and then we throw it out whereas what we have to do is we have to stop extractive industries, which means we have to stop mining. You know, we have to stop producing oil as well. We have to stop gold mining for goodness sake. Why on earth do we have to mine gold and destroy the environment so we can use it as a stored value? I mean, we should, there should be an amnesty, trade your gold in for Bitcoin or something, uh, you know, because something less environmentally damaging. But, when it comes to batteries, the good news is that the battery materials are 100% recyclable. And so in time, as we get more batteries in the system, they will be recycled and we will have to not produce as much of battery metals. But unfortunately, we're some decades away from that. You know, we should be, because as consumers, many of your listeners today, you know, they really care about the brands they buy products from, right? They want to know who they are. What do they stand for? And I think in the future, when there's a choice of being able to buy a product made from recycled materials, or in the case of metals, we call them virgin ores, you got to always go recycled. And so the consumers will force the brands to change their behavior. And so in the case of our company, we want to be out of this business and in the recycling business, 
in 40 to 50 years time for sure true or false with the money you're making from the mining the company will pay royalties to neighboring villages to build schools and infrastructures if so what um what percentage of royalties and to what nations would these go to yeah well so true um so you so to have a license in the uh, international waters you have to be sponsored by a member of the international seabed authority of which there are 167 plus the european union or you have to be one of those countries now in our case we are we have three license areas and they're sponsored by nauru uh, kiribati and the kingdom of tonga and so what that means is that we will provide royalties when we're in production to those countries we will also right today we provide jobs we have uh people on the ground in those co- developing countries uh we pay for education we pay for local programs and then we pay a much higher royalty to the international seabed authority and when when unclos was put into place uh way back in 1982 they were very um directive in what should happen to that royalty and the royalty should be distributed to developing countries particularly land locked countries who have no uh territorial waters of their own yeah and so there will be you know enormous benefits that will go to the developing country community and also to the sponsoring states in our case nauru tonga and kiribati beautiful countries as well beautiful nations have you been beautiful to- people oh yeah oh yeah and <laughs> and you know the only one i haven't been to is uh is tonga and um but i'll i'll be going there when lockdown travel is lifted and um but they're the most amazing beautiful people as well you know wow and so I'm so far away from here in london we don't get that weather but mm-hmm. uh How much is the deep sea mining industry worth? How much is this is this one of the biggest industries known to man? I mean, not today, not today. I mean, um but it's it's going to be worth a lot, right? I mean, but we're at the early days of unlocking it. I mean, you you might have seen we just announced a go public transaction ourselves um where we're merging with uh Soac in the uh on the New York Stock Exchange and so we're kind of leading the charge there if you like Mikey and we we I mean when I when I set out on this journey I wanted to create the world's most respected metals company on the planet something that I think was a position vacant because uh you know not too many mining companies are respected but and I guess I always had a view that value will follow that if you can create a company that customers want to buy products off people want to come and work at you know that that is doing good for the planet all at every possible turn then investors will want to invest in it as well and so i think as a future industry it's going to be very big we know the metals and mining industry is enormous and i think the future of metal production will come from our oceans and it brings me on to my next point it seems like you know you're making history as i said you're like an indiana jones or something um are you going to be documenting this process are you going to be filming it are you going to be streaming you know some of these discoveries your daily activities is this a, in the pipeworks yeah totally i mean if you go to um if you go to deep.green or soon it'll be uh metals.co 
you'll see lots of video footage of how we document our journey so far. You know, our boat is out on the water today, um, and it takes four and a half days from San Diego to reach one of our blocks. So it's a big old sail. You just head west four and a half days. <laughs> it's really straight direction. That way, that way, mate. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, but we are talking. You know that. You know that as well. Flat Earth is out there. Flat Earth is yeah. out there. He's just told you. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, so basically, uh, we, we do document it at every time. We've got 57 people on the boat, most of them scientists. Or The expedition goes for over six weeks, all studying this ecosystem and making sure we understand, you know, what, what the environment is, studying it whether one environment area changes to the next area, you know, and so it's a very extensive, we'll spend about $75 million just on those environmental studies. And, but look, we are, we are thinking, we're talking to some filmmakers about uh, making a film around this industry because, you know, one of the biggest challenges we have, of course, is people don't have an appreciation for the mining industry today. You know, they don't understand how, environmentally destructive it is and if we're about to do more of it because we need to build all these batteries then people need to understand what it is we're talking about and why the oceans present such a safer alternative to more land-based mining so you know stay tuned hopefully we'll see a uh you know a film hit the uh hit, hit netflix uh, or one of the other players sometime in the coming years oh definitely definitely watch that and um, true or false, you're a strong supporter of a closed-loop economy. Very true. Very true. Yeah, it's the future, right? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's about the recycling argument that we touched on a moment ago. It's, it's like we need to stop extractive industries. And the only way we can do that is by injecting a lot more metals into the system and then making sure they stay in there forever. And the good news is when we lift this nodule and we turn it into nickel or copper, it can be recycled 10, 50, 100 times. Now, imagine if that was in the case of a battery. You know, you buy an electric vehicle, lots of nickel and copper in them. Well, after 10 years, you know, it's no good anymore. It doesn't keep a charge or whatever, or you want a new model, it gets recycled. And so uh, all of the nickel and copper in there will be used again. And then again, and again, and again. And that's how we close the loop, right? By using more recycled material. But for those people that think we can go there now, they're wrong. Because just imagine it. You know, if you drive around the roads, you don't see many electric vehicles today, particularly when you go outside of, say, London. You know, they're just not to be seen. And so imagine over time, all of those cars moving electric. Imagine every household having a battery at home. So where are all the metals going to come from? You know, we need to produce billions of tons of this stuff, but then we can close the loop. This is a side note, but I don't know if it affects you at all. Um, there are 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic in the ocean, estimated. I don't know if that's true. Um, but loads of plastic in the ocean, as we all know. Does this affect your work at all? Does this... Does this do, does it get in the machines? Is this something that's going to be a problem? Do you have to work with that or is it just? 
No, it's not a it's not a direct problem for us, but it's horrible, isn't it? Uh, we actually lent our vessel to uh, one of the the plastic ocean cleanup groups uh, a couple of years ago for one of their study programs, and um, look, plastics are a massive issue, and of course, uh, the Pacific Great Garbage Patch is something that gets a lot of attention, and we have to change our approach to plastics, right? Uh, and yeah, it's emotionally it's horrible but it doesn't impact our operation no well i know that's not your beef as well you'll do one thing you're like jeez i'm trying to save out i'm trying to sort out the planet leave the <laughs> side all right one uh, catastrophe at a time okay <laughs> let's get to as we come to the end i just want to just talk about you know we've done the company sort of side of things just who you mm. are really which is really mm. interesting because as I say, um, what are some of the daily habits in your life? What are some of your daily routines? And I'm talking from an entrepreneurial sort of background. What, what are some of your daily things that you have to do in order to make things happen? <laughs> well, um, I have to get at least five hours of sleep. That's a requirement. Um, but I recommend more than seven. <laughs> Just doesn't seem to work for me. Uh, I have to exercise you know, just to keep my mind straight. You know, I, I just feel the need to do something, whether it's a uh, a walk or, you know, if I'm traveling, I just have a little routine where I do a few things just to get the, you know, the blood flowing. Um, and then, you know, I, I guess my, my background was very much, um, I grew up on a dairy farm in Australia. Australia is that countryside not by the sea at all no no nowhere near right. the sea right yeah yeah nowhere near the sea so I, I don't I don't think of myself as an ocean guy or a tree guy I'm just a planet guy right I care about the planet as a whole um, but yeah I grew up on a dairy farm so I knew there was one thing I didn't want to do and that was be a dairy farmer <laughs> and so I went to um, a small primary school, 50 kids. Then I went to a bigger high school, 800 kids. And then I went to my local university um, in, a, in a place called Toowoomba. Good luck spelling that. Um, it looks safe in, for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Toowoomba, it's, Toowoomba. What does that Toowoomba. mean? It, uh, it's an Aboriginal word. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and means landscape. And it's... Um, it was a great university. I mean, in my first year, I had four jobs, you know, and I, um, I, I worked at the local, you know, department store. I had a cleaning job. I worked a couple of bars. And I realized that there was no room for a fifth job. So I better rethink this job business. And, and so I started my first company uh, at university. And so by the time I finished university, I was a pretty you know, I just scraped through, if I'm honest, because I was busy doing all this other stuff, right? And I, I, I didn't want to be an A-star student. That wasn't important to me. But it was very important that I finish in the prerequisite time. So I did that. And, but I finished with my own business. And, um, and as all my colleagues were applying for jobs at all these great companies, I thought, gee, should I be doing that? I was like, no, you've got a job, silly. It's like, yeah, 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 that's right. I literally can remember having that talk to myself. And uh, yeah, then I've been lucky enough to build some great companies ever since. Yeah. And so, so to your, you know, to your listeners out there, 
you know, entering the job market. I think the, you know, it's changing times, right? It's very changing. But the barriers and the disruption that is going on right now presents so many great opportunities, I believe. And, um, you know, there are so many, we've all heard our teachers or our, you know, my kids talk about their teachers saying, you know, the job that you will be doing in 20 years time does not exist today. It's really true. You know, it's really true. It, it's probably, it, there's so much disruption happening across every industry that I think it's an amazingly exciting time, you know, for the youth of today. So, so you've come at quite a different route. Do you think that, hey, you could have got the A stars if you wanted to. Do you think the schooling kind of held you back in a way? Or was it all part of the process? Do you think? No, no, that was a calculated decision. You know, I, I, I um, you know, I, I could easily have been a, an A student, but for me, it was just, you know, all the teachers in the world will be hating me for this. So I'm sorry, teachers, but I knew what I had to do to pass, you know, and it was like, I was busy doing other stuff. And, um, and so I kind of, I played a lot of sport as a kid. I, I gave that up when I went to university because um, I, I discovered business really. I, I, and I had a passion for it. You know, I just found it really fascinating. And so I think that, you know, everyone is different, right? In my case, I, um, you know, fear of failure was something that's always been with me. You know, I just don't like the, the, the prospect of it and you know that makes us all work very very hard and um yeah so no i don't think my education held me back or dare i say particularly helped me but it was uh it was just the right balance yeah that's what i was going to say i was wondering if it's the right balance and mm. you mentioned failures is there one thing that you wish you knew before you started the entrepreneurial game uh, you know, not really. I mean, not really. I, I think that there are surprises and there are mistakes, but all of those mistakes lead us to be the person we are today. And I think that, you know, just building deep relationships is something that I always encourage, you know, my own kids and, uh, you know, and, and, and in a business sense, whether it's, if you're looking for a job, just go that extra yard, say, thank you, you know, write us, write a little note or remember someone. If you're talking to one of your, uh, someone that you really admire or you you think you might be able to work for them one day or and they mention something interesting write it down and put it in a file note whether it's the name of their dog or the name of their kids or something that they were particularly interested in because the next time you're talking to them and you bring it up they'll go huh that's that's good so just think about how you can be a little bit different to the pack is what i'd encourage people and Here's another question, just as we come to the end. Um, apart from friends and family, who would you say are the most three influential people to you, the three most influential people to you? Uh, <clears throat> Maybe throughout your journey as well, 
maybe someone from the present now, but maybe someone when you were a bit more come on the come up, I think mm. got you through these sort of things. Yeah, I that's a really tough question for me to answer, actually, because my mother has been such an inspiration to me because she had a lot of disabilities in life and you know, I was, uh, I was the youngest of five kids and I saw her struggle through those and I was part of those struggles. And, you know, it tails off from there. You know, I met a lot of people, I admire a lot of people, but there's no one influencer that I really think, you know, I pin my flag to their mission. You know, I've kind of made my own way there. You know, it's kind of my mother and my late father who I, I adored, but, but especially my mother. And, uh, you know, and then it all tails off from there, really. I've, I've been lucky enough to have an amazing group of friends around me along the way and, um, you know, personal relationships. And so, look, but no, I don't really, I don't really have any of those superheroes that so often people do. But most people do say they're friends and family. So I put you on a tough one there. So <laughs> I agree. But you said the good answer there. Um, as we're coming to the end, is there any advice that you want to give young people, especially during these times and how they can kind of become the person that you are? Because a lot of people out there, they want to be entrepreneurs. They, they want to see the day and they've probably got some great projects that they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, ambitious. They might need some capital. They might need some help. What, is there any advice that you can give young people right now? My advice would be, um, firstly, tenacity and not giving up is a really important quality, of course. Um, sometimes you've got to accept your idea is wrong. You know, Sometimes just because you're tenacious and have drive, you might just have the wrong idea. So be prepared to leave those ideas behind, you know, when you, you push up against something that's not working because failure is no curse for a successful future. You know, failure is a learning opportunity. And so my advice to people would be, um, you know, having some discipline is important. Even if your discipline is uh, getting out of bed at a set, set time every day, pulling up the covers, you know, simple stuff like that, because it'll help you, organize i better go and make my bed by the way uh it'll help you organize your mind um and then like i said before build meaningful trusted relationships and treat other people as you would expect to be treated yourself you know integrity is so important you know never never lie you know never do any never just just be good make sure there's goodness wrapped around you and then um yeah, and I think success will find its way to you. Fantastic and well said. And make sure you follow his journey. He's Jared Barron. He's a CEO of Deep Green, going to change to the metals company, but he's bringing ethics back to business. And as I said, he has the mind of a scientist. He has the looks of an action hero and he has a heart of gold. Thank <laughs> you very much for coming on the show, Jared Barron. Thanks, Mikey. It's a pleasure. Well, it's the end of the show, and that was one of my favorite episodes. Even though Jared Barron spends most of his time under the ocean, he's actually a very down-to-earth guest. So thank you all for listening. Please follow me on YouTube and Instagram, Mikey Barge. So many of you are jumping on board and telling me how much you love and enjoy the content I post. 
thank you very much and I'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye.